0: You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Yoon Kim who is currently a research scientist at the MIT IBM AI Watson lab and will be joining MIT as an assistant professor in 2021. Yoon's research focuses on machine learning and natural language processing and his PhD thesis is titled Deep Latent Variable Models of Natural Language which he completed in 2020 at Harvard University. On today's episode, we discuss his work on uncovering latent structure in natural language, including continuous vector representations, tree structures, and grammars. We cover interesting learning and variational inference methods that he developed during his PhD, and he offers a look at where latent variable models will be heading in the future. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and be sure to follow on Twitter at thesis review. If you would like to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview, and contribute a dollar towards coffee funds. There are links to Yoon's thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Yoon Kim with Deep Latent Variable Models of Natural Language on the Thesis Review. So your thesis involves automatically discovering or finding structure in language. Mm-hmm. So do you think that language has some true underlying structure? And if we did discover, or how would we know that we discovered the true structure versus just uh, some other structure?
1: I'm a very naive linguist and a you know cognitive scientist. So what if I say is going to be probably very wrong? Um, But my view on this, um, and and it's an interesting, like, almost philosophical question, because it does inform how you uh, approach, how you model language. My view is that Mm -hmm. these types of structures, like grammars, that are purported to govern human language acquisition, are uh, nice enough mathematical abstractions that are computationally tractable to work with. So any learning that happens through these structures are, uh, I think, um, nice approximations, interpretable somewhat approximations to real world phenomena, which is language. Um, whether these structures are real, i.e. is our brain implementing a grammar? I don't think so. But again, I don't know enough about um, psycholinguistics, cognitive science to comment more intelligibly. Um, on the one hand, I, I think, the world would be too nice if that were the case and, um, mm. you know, the world is messy. So, uh, I don't know, but on the other hand, like one of my favorite quotes is from Jason Iser. I may be misremembering, but it says something like, um, either the world is hierarchical or there is a God, or it could be either the world is compositional or there is a God. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: these hi- type the fact that like hierarchical structure, compositional structures are ubiquitous in sort of any physical phenomena, could be a case that these types of structures that we posit to govern language are in some sense physically grounded um but again i don't ha- know enough about these areas to comment my- more intelligibly but my my take on it is these are just good tools we have to model natural
0: language data so yeah you could kind of approach it from a psycholinguistics perspective or linguistics perspective And maybe argue for some structure
1: right what's interesting though is like um these types of hierarchical structures there does seem to be enough uh, neurobiological evidence that some for example something like parsing is happening in the human brain and of course the exact mechanisms by which you know uh, these structures are built are um, under much scientific debate and investigation currently but it seems like there's quite robust evidence that something like pausing is happening.
0: Yeah, so so certainly, e- even if we might not get some kind of exact true structure, there is some sense of structure, it seems like. And I guess what yeah. you're saying is that right. there's something that can help computationally to to model language. Yeah, Your thesis, it's uh, titled Deep Latent Variable Models of Natural Language. <laughs> um, so maybe first, could you just define what, latent variable models are and how you got interested in these?
1: Sure. Um, so latent variable models are essentially, um, in my view, joint distributions. So over observed variables, typically X, and unobserved latent variables, typically Z. Um, and then mm-hmm. we have some parameters for this joint distribution, uh, say theta. Um, and of course, latent variable models have been Um, one of the classical machine learning tools for discovering structure in natural language data or for things like structure prediction. An advantage of latent variable models is that um, the joint distribution or the factorization of the joint distribution into conditional distributions gives the modeler a powerful tool to imbue your generative model, your joint distribution with the right inductive biases. For example, in an HMM, uh, There are conditional independence assumptions in the HMM that um, lead to, for example, part of speech, like uh, tags that become discovered once you uh, learn this uh, generative model, uh, latent variable model. Um, So that's a latent variable model. What I mean by deep latent variable models is that um, we still use the language, the declarative language of latent variable models to um, factorize the joint distribution into... Conditional distributions, and this is again specify the modeler, and is dependent upon what kind of language phenomena, phenomena, or any underlying phenomena that you want to model. Um, but in deep latent variable models, we parameterize these conditional distributions with uh, neural networks,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, there are two reasons why you might want to do this. One is that neural networks gives a Um, allows you to uh, flexibly parameterize your conditional distribution over high-dimensional combinatorial input without an explosion in number of uh, parameters. For example, if you Mm -hmm. consider, um, say, a naive Bayes model, which is classical, the reason why um, typically the naive Bayes assumption is made is because otherwise conditioning on the latent variable Z and the past history would quickly... Um, result in a blow-up in terms of the number of uh, probabilities that you need to estimate. But if you condition on the history with, say, some sequential neural network like an RNN or a transformer, then you can compactly represent a combinatorial distribution. You can compactly represent a distribution of the output conditioned on a combinatorial input uh, with this neural net. So that's one advantage of having... um, uh, these deep latent variable models, i.e., neural parameterizations of conditional likelihoods. Another reason is that even if you have the same um, conditional independence assumptions, turns out there's something almost magical that happens if you parameterize these conditional distributions over say neural nets over embedding representations. Um, and I'm exact, I'm not exactly sure why this happens. Um, And the analog is something like a non-latent variable, say, feed-forward language models. Um, You can have, say, a feed-forward 3-gram language model where the distribution of the output is given by, you know, some concatenation of the history uh, where you feed that through a neural net. Um, Typically, that Mm -hmm. does better than just a regular count-based language model where you actually do the exact maximum likelihood estimation by counting and dividing. Um, mm. and uh, so if you don't smooth, so if you don't smooth, then like this typically sort of Benjio style feed forward language models do well, which is strange, right? Cause on the mm. one hand you have uh, counting and dividing, which is your exact MLE solution. Whereas on the other hand, you have some neural net solution. I think there's some similar effect like that happening here where that through parameter sharing over these embeddings, um, there's more mm. statistical efficiency. Um, yeah, so one phenomena that I found is that even if you have the same exact probabilistic model in terms of, uh, the factorization of the conditional uh, distributions, typically if you parameterize these modular components with neural nets, that, that does better both in terms of structured discovery and, uh, training objective, but I I don't know why that happens. And I, I wish someone like smarter than me would
0: figure this out. Yeah, that is really interesting. So you're saying it's kind of analogous to um, one of these n-gram language models and just by using the neural parameterization, yeah. something, uh, yeah, something is happening there which helps it to generalize better. Right. Well, luckily we have plenty of smart people, I'm sure, listening to this podcast, so hopefully someone will figure it out now. Going into your PhD, did you know that you wanted to focus on these types of latent variable models or deep latent variable models or at what stage did you kind of pick up an interest in this area
1: oh um yeah most definitely not um i couldn't have imagined for example going in that i would be spending a couple of years doing like grammar induction um actually going into my phd i was like a very much deep learning purist where Mm you know, like, you know, let's get some data, put it through a neural net, um, predict something, get a number and optimize that. And essentially, I think the first, um, first couple of works during my PhD were in this, you know, vein of purely deep learning, empirical work, mostly in the realm of um, supervised learning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, um, and then i sort of got interested in latent variable models through like the VAE literature and i spent a year trying to make vaes work for a language um like sort of sentence level modeling and and you know uh, I, it's not clear they still work as well but um that was my foray into latent variable modeling from the perspective of like deep uh sort of deep generative models i e um deep uh where your joint generative model is given by a neural net and you do inference over this uh you do approximate inference over this typically intractable model with another neural network uh, i.e the Mm -hmm. inference network so that's how i got interested in latent variable models and um and then at the same time I, i i was just taking you know a couple of linguistics classes and this notion of like grammars and syntax um Again, I don't know enough to. I, I I'm probably like I don't know enough to comment intelligibly, but but they, they it seemed like there was something there, um, mm-hmm. and then I think that's how I got interested in grammar induction, and then um trying to discover these hierarchical structures from data. Yeah, certainly to go back to your original question, is something I never planned. I I think during my PhD, I I, I just kind of. what seemed interesting like like my personality type is that if if i have an interesting idea that i think is interesting which typically turns out not to be interesting afterwards but uh, but i like have to try it so like yeah 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 so um i don't think there was any you know like plan on doing this type of work through my phd certainly not
0: you were kind of uh driven to investigate these models out of interest versus saying like I want to, I don't know, achieve better performance on a specific task or something like that.
1: Uh, Yeah. And especially with grammar induction, because I think, um, especially nowadays, it's, you know, like classical, one of the classical motivations for grammar induction, uh, one of the classical motivations was, oh, like there are many domains and languages in which having access to these types of uh, induced trees would be useful for some downstream engineering task, and that may still be mm-hmm. true for some still some like low resource languages or domains but mm-hmm. in the current um, paradigm of these giant pre-trained models on self-supervised objectives you think um the ca- the engineering case for grammar induction is becoming smaller and smaller but i, I think it's still a very interesting question from a scientific standpoint and that mm-hmm. um for example the amount of inductive bias that you instill into your artificial learner, um, and whether your learner is successful at discovering the syntax of language um, just from raw text, I, I think tells, some, tells us something deep about um, the, the, innate, the classical you know, debate between the nativist and the learning-based um, theories of human language acquisition.
0: There does seem to be something nice about working with these models and these latent variables there's almost something mysterious like what sort of structure will they will yeah, they find
1: yeah. and it, it's very frustrating as well like not only does the conditional independence assumptions that you imbue into you know generative model matter but the, how you parameterize these like individual conditional distributions also matters so there's like mm. inductive bias from the factorization of the uh, generative model itself and there's also like inductive bias and in how you use a neural net to parameterize each of these smaller components. Um, so the, it, it can be a frustrating exercise as well, trying to get mm-hmm. these models to discover the right structure.
0: So yeah, hopefully over the course of this conversation, we'll go into a few mm-hmm. examples of this. You focus on this, um, like it's focused around this variational inference mm-hmm. approach. Do you maybe want to just introduce that at a high level?
1: So one way to learn these generative models again, which are just joint distributions over P, Z, and X, um, is through maximum likelihood learning. And depending on how you factorize the, this joint distribution, you can marginalize out the Z. So you get P of X, the likelihood, um, through sort of some tractable um, summation algorithm, whether it be dynamic programming and sort of classical factored models or just enumeration. And mm-hmm. in that case, in that case, you can um, maximize the log, this log likelihood P of X through whatever method, whether it be EM or gradient ascent. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there are cases in which you're... Gen- you're um, and then going actually into the EM approach Uh, One critical part of the CM approach is doing posterior inference over the latent variable z conditioned on the uh, data x. So you need this object, pz given x. And again, in classical models like HMMs, um, this is tractable to uh, estimate. So exact posterior inference in many of these classical models is tractable. But Mm -hmm. once you get into sort of neural parametrizations, um, then there are many cases in which this posterior inference, i.e. pz given x, becomes intractable. Mm -hmm. And a classical approach to getting around this is through uh, variational inference where you posit this variational family of distributions which are going to be learned. um, And this will approximate the true posterior distribution And one can show that the log marginal likelihood, i.e. log p of x, is lower bounded by this quantity called the evidence lower bound, which makes use of this variational distribution. And the classical approach to learning uh, intractable models with this variational approach was to uh, do an EM-like approach, where in the E step, you perform variational inference for each of your data points, so you uh, approximate the true posterior distribution, and then in the M step, you uh, maximize the, uh, log joint likelihood P X given Z under the expectation of this approximate posterior distribution. So -hmm. that's sort of classical variational inference, and this leads to methods like coordinate ascent variational inference and conditionally conjugate models and, uh, stochastic variational inference where Uh, uh, you can do gradient ascent to do variational inference. Um, A drawback of these types of approaches is that um, typically you still need to do inference for each data point separately. And this could be expensive if uh, if you have, say, millions of images over which you want to do inference. And this is where this technique called amortized variational inference comes in. And this was introduced in 2014 from a bunch of groups: um, King Mayan Welling, uh, Razender and Muhammad, and Andrei, Mee and some other folks at DeepMind as well. And mm-hmm. and this has roots going back to some work in 2000s as well, uh, where I think actually your advisor might have some work where he used similar ideas to initialize the starting distributions of restricted Boltzmann machines with, with like these types of learned inference networks.
0: We'll have to see if he's listening. If he's listening, <laughs> then uh, he'll. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, now you have this, amort- in this amortized variation inference. Instead of doing per data inference, you predict the parameters of your approximate variational distribution to be a uh, feed forward function of your input, which is parameterized as a neural net. And this is really cool because it transforms the task of inference into prediction. Actually, um, uh, to go uh, to go back a step, variational inference is itself cool because it transformed the task of posterior inference into optimization over this variational family. And then Mm -hmm. amortized Mm -hmm. variational inference transforms this optimization task into a prediction task. Um, Mm -hmm. And an advantage of this is that you can now do sort of easier inference, approximate inference of your data points by just passing this inference network of your inputs and then obtaining the variational parameters. And mm-hmm. then um, you can train both the generative model and this inference network end to end on on this quantity called the evidence lower bound.
0: Yeah, so it's 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 like a nice neural version of uh, variational inference in some sense,
1: right? And, and um, that that's sort of like the core technique in my thesis, where I'll be typically working with deep latent variable models, which uh, for which exact posterior inference is intractable. So we want to do approximate inference over them. And then um, to do this, I'll employ another neural network, uh, this inference network to obtain the parameters of the approximate variational distribution. And a lot of my thesis considers sort of different takes on how to adapt this broad technique of amortized inference uh, for different applications of interest.
0: Yeah, and that's a great lead-in. So one thing I really liked was... um you had this table at the end of the background section. Mm-hmm. And it kind of breaks down the rest of the thesis in terms of what ta- what type of latent variable you're dealing right. with, and the type of generative model, and mm-hmm. then the type of learning and inference procedure that you developed. Mm-hmm. We could start with the first one, which is um, a continuous latent variable. Yep. And here you're dealing with um, modeling uh, sentences or, or text. Right what would be the, the hope for a latent variable model of sentences?
1: Yeah, so the ideal hope with, with that type of model, so just to give the readers background, this is a classical sentence VAE originally proposed by uh, Sam Bowman, um, who's of course mm-hmm. at NYU 2 where we posit a latent variable, which ideally governs sort of the long range um dependencies in a sentence or the topical elements of a sentence and that is coupled with a uh, neural network decoder actually i don't like to use the word decoder neural network generative model that mm-hmm. conditions on the latent vector z and the history through some odor regressive methodology uh, odor regressive factorization and you know sam berman had this very nice paper in 2015 and mm-hmm. It turns out the result was somewhat negative negative, in that, mm-hmm. um, if you had a lot of optimization tricks, like, um, penalizing certain parts of the objective, um, you could get it to work, but it, t- but a lot of the time, the model, uh, the generative model just learned to ignore the latent variable mm-hmm. and, um, I think after wrestling with this, the community realized, oh, this sort of makes sense from an optimization standpoint. If you have a flexible enough uh, generative model, i.e., say a you know fully order regressive RNN, then if the model can use that to model the underlying data p of x without using the latent variable, then mm-hmm. you know it doesn't have to pay the penalty for this portion of the elbow, which is the KL divergence between QZ give the variational distribution and the prion. Mm-hmm. And I think the interesting question at, at the time this work was, uh, was going on was like, whether that was the full story, i.e. Is it just due to this, um, sort of the expressivity of the, uh, generative model. And of course this has, this had, um, Uh, led to a lot of other interesting work on making the generative model less flexible, like making it convolutional or even just a backwards model. Mm -hmm. And um, this work, uh, initial work, was looking at now asking the question whether this was, again, just due to the expressivity of the generative model, or is there something that happens because we're doing um, this thing called amortized inference. And what we found was like um, this idea of amortized inference where you transform the problem of optimization into a neural network prediction problem is a powerful technique for doing efficient approximate <laughs> inference. But the family of variational distributions that you get through this is a subset of the variational distribution that you get from say a classical variation variational inference method because you're not able to do sort of like per datum inference. Mm, um, yeah, so in this uh, work, we, we looked at whether improving this amortized inference method by uh, augmenting this amortized inference with more classical uh, per datum inference techniques uh, would mm-hmm. enable learning of generative models that don't ignore the latent code, but allows us uh, allows you to have a very expressive generative model. And the result was somewhat like, like, yeah, there wasn't total ignorance, uh, total ignoring of the latent variable, but you know the method was quite slow. Um, so it's, it's not clear it's it's going to be like useful. Um, but that was the context of the this work that you mentioned, which was the first um, I guess chapter of my thesis.
0: So yeah, that was this <clears throat> semi amortized right. variational inference was the name for it. Maybe the initial work on this was um, kind of mixed because of this posterior collapse issue. But in general, like looking back or or looking forward, do you think that trying to incorporate these continuous latent variable models uh, for text generation has either certain applications or uh, can help with getting lower perplexity or or something like that?
1: Um, No, my answer to that is pretty much no. (laughs) um, Yeah, so I've changed my thinking around like these types of latent variable models that fully condition on its history. And Uh um, I I see no like, good reason to use them. Um, Mm. And and, like, again, maybe I'll change my thinking on this uh, Mm -hmm. over the next year or two. But like, why do we want latent variable models? One reason is we want to discover structure from data. So from that perspective, Mm -hmm like we want our latent variable models to then have some conditional independence conditioned on the latent vector Z. So that mm. um, if you think about the infinite data, infinite model capacity regime, um, the, the the latent variable will still learn something, right? And it's not clear that's happening in these models where it's fully uh, conditioning on the past history, i.e. the model is basically not identifiable. So, so that is a case against these types of models from the perspective of learning structure. Even from the perspective of generation, um, it's not clear like that these latent variables will encode what you want it to encode through just simple training, right? Um, and, and like after training, we do find that these latent variable models do encode um, more they're more sensitive to parts of the sentence that include things like lexical nouns and verbs. But just relying on just doing, uh, you know hoping for that to emerge seems like um, seems like too too uh, futile of an exercise. So I hmm, think I these see. types of like straight up fully autoregressive generative models that have a latent vector each time step, may not have much utility, but where I do see, uh, interesting stuff happening is now where you're able to provide some sort of like supervision on this latent vector through some other, some means, right. One example of work, mm-hmm. which, you know, I really love is, um, the controllable text generation work from, you know, Xi Ting, where he provides some supervision into the latent vectors that he's learning it's, it's, it's through this framework. Insofar as this, these models can be combined with other data sources or other ideas that allow you to inject what you want to learn into the latent vector that that facilitates um, some level of controllability and interpretability in the generation process, I think these are useful. But on their own, I, I, I think, like, for example, I don't think that we should be training these models to get lower perplexity, even though that's exactly mm-hmm. what I did.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, that's a valuable perspective, though, um, to kind of like reflect back. And so, yeah, so I guess what you're saying is the in terms of language modeling, if you have an autoregressive language model, Mm -hmm. then it's probably powerful enough on its own. And then if we want something like interpretability, Mm -hmm. it's probably most useful to declare what type of interpretability we want through some labeled examples.
1: Right. And then actually like uh, uh, one person who made me change my thinking on this was again, your advisor where like, um, <laughs> we're talking and he, he, I maybe miss, I'm surely like misremembering the exact wording, but it, it was something like given a, no, given a model that does experience posterior collapse and therefore just becomes a language model. Is there mm-hmm. a model that has, you know, the same type of conditional inverse assumptions that doesn't experience posterior collapse, but when you marginalize the latent variable out, you get the same perplexity. And initially, like, I didn't even under- understand quest- this question, but like, after thinking about it, like, y- yeah, that there, there has to be like, because when you marginalize these models out, they just become models over P of X, right? Mm, so right. Just from the perspective of getting lower perplexity, um, I'm not sure there's a strong case for these latent variable models in rich data and rich model regimes.
0: So, if the autoregressive nature, uh, so if the the fact that the generative model or the decoder is too powerful mm-hmm. is an issue, do you think that th- th- these could potentially be promising for say non-autoregressive generation where you could have a latent variable to capture the global structure and then mm-hmm. Your uh, decoder has these conditional independence assumptions.
1: Uh, yeah, totally, and there's you know a really nice, rich line of work on these types of latent variable-based uh, uh, non odoregressive regressive generation, and I think that that's such a nice application of like a pretty cool technique. And these are you know combined with things like flows, um, where yeah, that's a cool application of latent variable models. Uh, for for practical benefits in contemporary deep learning based NLP.
0: Okay, good. So so there's still hope.
1: <laughs> All right, let's hope so. Yeah.
0: We could. Uh, I mean, we could return to the attention if there's time. But I, I want to make sure we talked about um, the latent variable being an unlabeled binary parse tree. Yeah, sure. Because uh, this was really interesting to me. So now instead of a continuous vector, Mm -hmm. not only is the latent variable discrete, but it's also structured, so Mm -hmm. structured according to a tree structure. And then the generative model is this recurrent neural network grammar. Yeah. So, yeah, did you maybe want to talk about um, just how this investigation got motivated?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So maybe we can start with a little background on recurrent neural network grammars which was introduced by Chris Dyer and colleagues in 2016. And um, these recurrent neural network grammars, RNNGs, are basically generative models of sentences and trees. So these are joint generative models, say PZ and X, where X is a sentence and Z is your tree. And um, what makes these different from classical, say, uh, RNN language models is that the generation uh, is a hierarchical process as opposed to a flat left to right generation process, in that as you generate a sentence, um, you have you maintain a stack, and uh, as you generate a sentence, you uh, complete constituents as you generate the sentences and update the stack with representations of these completed hierarchical uh, structures, which are constituents. Mm-hmm. What's really fascinating about these models is that um, they really exhibit, so actually just from a language, just from a pure machine learning standpoint, they're very interesting because they typically outperform regular language models when you train on the same amount of data. So it, it, it's interesting from that point of view as well. But from a scientific standpoint, these models are very interesting because they truly exhibit different uh they learn to generalize syntactically in a different way than your regular language models. And this has been borne out through a bunch of experiments. Uh, Roger Levy and colleagues at MIT have a bunch of works that, you know, uh, test these models vis-a-vis the flat RNN language models on psycholinguistic stimuli. Um, Mm -hmm. Chris Dyer, uh, John Hale, Jonathan Brennan and his colleagues also have some work with, where they correlate certain metrics derived from this model uh, against electrophysiological activity in the brain and show that it correlates better or even on top of these flat um, left to right language models um, actually which is one of one sort of evidence for uh, reification of these past trees uh, in the human brain but. Let, let's close that mm-hmm. parenthesis. Um, so, so these models are just fascinating, both from a machine learning standpoint and from a cognitive science standpoint. And in fact, I, I think there's a rich research program around RNMGs in the cognitive sciences, um, trying to you know, compare them against human, uh, human language processing. Um, but in the original work, this model was trained on uh, a supervised tree bank. Uh, ie the pantry bank and of course um, one thing that motivated motivated the unsupervised R N G work is that um, when you know children acquire the syntax of their native language they don't do it with the textbook like supervision that we give to our supervised learning algorithms right you know no one tells a baby here's you know his a English sentence here's a parse tree I'll learn a mapping um, Mm-hmm. Again, there is some debate as to how much implicit supervision that children get when learning the syntax of their native language, but clearly it's not, you know, like the textbook-like supervision. So an interesting question then is like, um, can we, you know, use these RNNGs, but somehow discover the underlying structure uh, without supervision? So that was the main challenge of the work, and um, the way we tackled it was again through this. Um, This overarching technique of variational inference where we now parameterize a distribution over binary trees, which are going to be past trees of a sentence, um, with with some neural net. We used a neural conditional random field. And you know, as soon as you have this, this automatically gives you all the machinery of variational inference. And you can, you know, crack this machinery and essentially train the model. Um, what was a challenge in this model was that um, because the generative model is too flexible, and and this actually mirrors the discussion that we had with regard to having factorizations, having too flexible of parameterizations in generative models, hindering the learning of in- interesting structure in the in the continuous right, right. case. Um, but the RNMG is, is also a ver- it's it's you know it's the latent variable is discrete but it's also a very flexible model in that it fully conditions on, on the previous history. So um, Mm -hmm. the challenge was, how do we somehow um, encourage the model so that it learns meaningful tree structures? And what we found to be effective enough was um, imbuing uh, using a uh, constrained, more constrained variational inference network, uh, variational posterior distribution, which is, uh, a CRF pass, constituency Python. and we found that to be crucial in, uh, learning somewhat meaningful tree structures from raw text while maintaining this, um, maintaining the good perplexity characteristics of the original RNNG. Um, but actually, again, like looking back on this work. I do think still, like, uh, I, I think it was a happy accident that we found a parameterization of the variational distribution and uh, the neural network that parametrizes the variational parameters of that distribution, right? Um, and and I, I just got lucky and stumbled upon this parameterization, which made use of, you know, other work as well. But I do think this is, like maybe not the correct approach if you're interested in learning good structures.
0: Yes, so there's a few things that, um that, that was like a really good overview. There's a few things that I would wanna expand further. So like first, um so you mentioned this correspondence that has been investigated between the recurrent neural network grammar and what might happen in the brain. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's one argument for using this constituency tree, uh, uh, form. I was just wondering, like, why did you choose to use constituency trees versus, say, dependency trees? Maybe it has to do with the uh, the grammar induction task. I think maybe people focus on constituency parsing more.
1: <laughs> um, it's funny actually. Most, uh, most grammar induction work worked on uh, uh, not uh, maybe um overgeneralizing uh, more like dependency-based structures because. Um, mm, I see, <laughs> getting constituency structures. and this was the classical, you know based on the classical DMV work from Dan Klein and Chris Manning. right, right. Um, And I-, I talked to a couple of researchers regarding like, uh, oh, why the focus on dependency grammars and and the answer was like because the constituency induction problem turned out to be much uh, more difficult, not mathematically, but mm. just empirically. Um, but I-, I think there may be, I, again, I do not know enough linguistics. There may be well-motivated reasons to re- use one structure versus the other, but to me, I I just did constituency structure because that's what the original RNG work did.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you kind of alluded to this that um, in practice, it was maybe difficult to get these two to train.
1: Yes, and this was an example in which it was not just enough to use a... Uh, crf inference network right that's the class of variational distributions but it was important to use a certain parameterization of the neural net that gave the logits or the parameters of this variational inference network
0: yeah so then i i'm guessing like in initial experiments you were just getting like all left to right trees or all right to left trees or something like that uh
1: so initially when i was working with a non-crf inference network so a a transition-based parser that just looks at the entire sentence i wasn't able to get anything um and then when i moved on to the crf in- inference network like it, it sort of worked out of the box and and i got really lucky because i was you know thinking about how to parameterize the logits of your crf and i just took a standard parameterization that um i think mitchell and stern proposed uh, from berkeley for training constituency parsers and i just randomly read Happened to have read that recently, and I was like, "Oh, that seems to work nicely." So, so <laughs> I, I just did that, and, and it, it worked. But had that not worked, I think. And then I, when I actually look back, and I used like a different parameterization, um, it didn't work. Um, so mm. had that first parameterization not worked, I, I think maybe I wouldn't. I would have given up.
0: Yeah, interesting. Recently, there's been um, this PyTorch Struct library that was developed, yeah. probably yeah. motivated by some of these issues that we're talking about in, in your work.
1: I think part of this was motivated by uh, my advisor, Sasha, um, looking at my horrendous code <laughs> and seeing, oh, like <laughs> it, we can like, make this much, much faster and more efficient. And, and I'm actually using, um, using that library for my current project and like, oh man, like, yeah, yeah, it, it's... it's uh, I, don't, I thought my optimization was like decent, but damn, like, yeah, you, this library is on another level
0: so you said with the messy code, but like a more uh, generous perspective is that you like went really deep into this problem. And then we probably didn't even realize that these are good things to provide in a library potentially. And so I I just wanted to ask, like if you redid this project now Mm -hmm. using that library, would it have any difference? Or do you think that um, there's still issues, I guess with this parameterization that um, it still would, be difficult to get it to work
1: uh yeah certainly it'd be a lot less lines of code but i think the (laughs) whatever feeds into this uh pytorch library which is you know just crfs um right but yeah maybe iterating through that experiment uh, the different parameterizations might have been easy if you know i didn't have to worry about getting the entropy and you know samples and all that
0: yeah yeah i see so the next sections on these grammar and continuous vector mm-hmm. uh, latent variables, um, and the generative model is called compound probabilistic context-free grammars. Yeah, yeah,
1: which which I regret now naming, but
0: because uh-huh. <laughs> it's too long of a name, or
1: oh no, because like it's not actually a comp, it's not like a PCF, it, it's not a context-free grammar in the classical sense, at least.
0: Um, oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, these same somewhat related what was this kind of a next step to the unsupervised rng or
1: um so i didn't think about the connection between the two but I, i think one way to make a connection is like with this you are with the unsupervised rng work you're starting with a very flexible generative model that you know doesn't really have inductive bias to discover these tree structures and then you're saying oh how can we um how can we somewhat guide the learning process such that it it, it discovers meaningful tree structures. And we do that with a variational posterior distribution that is more restrained. So it's like an example of a classical posterior regularization framework. So i.e. you start with a very flexible model and then you regularize um, its posterior. And I think maybe one one way to characterize, one way to contrast this compound PCFG work is starting from the other end. I. E. can we start with a pretty classical but a weak model that does have strong inductive bias, i.e. a PCFG, mm-hmm. and can we make that more flexible with with like deep learning? Yeah, I think that could be an interesting way of contrasting these two works, but putting them in the same family of uh, these lines of work that want to discover meaningful structure from text, but also ideally model the underlying data well.
0: So then in this case, again, the structure that it's attempting to discover is the constituency tree, right?
1: So in, in, in like empirical practice, there's no distinction between like trees and grammars because these are evaluated as unsupervised pauses. But I, I do think there is a deep distinction between uh, discovering trees and discovering like grammars. Uh, you, you can do unsupervised pausing without inducing a grammar. but if you induce a grammar that gives you tree structures for free.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So then what was the, um, kind of key idea behind this work?
1: Uh, yeah. So there were two key ideas. One was, um, sort of revisiting the classical PCF gene, uh, which, which yeah, is, um, sort of not one, one natural model of, um, uh, human language. I think there's still debates as to whether human languages. Oh, certainly, like it's been proved that human certain languages are not provably not context-free. Um, but um, I, I think there's some debate as to still like whether English is context-free. Um, but anyway, that's mm. a side note. But these <laughs> do seem like sort of um nice enough formalisms that have tractable algorithms for inference. Um. Uh, to discover grammars from text again which and once you discover this context grammar for text they give you parse trees for free um Mm -hmm. but it turned out for the past 20 30 years like inducing these grammars from text with these pcfgs was very hard um there had been some successes on um like very short sentences with gold pot of speech tags and also if you have some Sort of like bounds on how deep you want your trees to be, um, but th- this was like an empirical puzzle where we had this very almost in a very beautiful model of language that should work if you do maximum likelihood learning, but just didn't. The trees you got mm-hmm. didn't really uh, correspond to linguistically annotated trees. Um, so the first um, contribution of this work was like revisiting this classical, uh, revisiting this classical grammar and. Again, like thinking about how do we neuralize this distribution, where we have the same conditional independence assumptions, the same generative model, the same PCFG, but we have the we um, we parameterize the distributions to be outputs of neural nets, and mm-hmm. it turned out the simple change allowed us. to to train somewhat linguistically meaningful grammars um, through simple maximum likelihood learning, which which was, I think, pretty cool result. And I I think it's probably like um, the more surprising aspect of that work than the the second uh, extension, which I'll talk about. Um, So this was, again, a classical PCFG, but with a neural take on it. In the compound PCFG, which is um, sort of our second uh, addition to this, um, we try to uh, model long-range dependencies within a sentence, with a sentence of a latent vector. And the reason we might want to do this is that um, even if, say, English were context-free, um, mm-hmm. the classical PCFGs that we're working with are not uh, large enough or flexible enough to modeling, uh, model like um the richness of English language. For example, it's clearly not. Uh, so, there's, it's not a, we weren't working with, for example, a lexicalized PCFG. And in principle, we could work with them, but this quickly uh, results in an explosion in the number of rules in your context free grammar. So, even if ex- exact posterior inference were tractable, um becomes uh, imp- in, in, intractable in practice uh, to, to train these models. And this in this second extension that we call the compound PCFG, um, because this is an example of a compound generative process, um, we uh, almost as a hack approximate these richer dependencies in a sentence with a sentence of a leading vector. And mm. um, sort of like a TLDR of this work is it's like a VAE with a PCFG decoder. And uh, we found that this resulted both in better structure learning and um, a better model of language as measured by perplexity.
0: And then you also evaluate on the um, uh, the parsing capability.
1: That's right. Right. So we evaluated the grammars um, as an unsupervised parsing system, and we found that um, they were able to do well, which was um, exciting. So, so one of the classical... Uh, Negative results in NLP and grammar induction was that um, if you train these PCFGs on like the full PTB, you get a you get a grammar out, but the parse trees that you get uh, underperform trivial uh, trivial tree baselines like right branching baselines in English, which is pretty good because English is a uh, head-initial language. Uh, but we turned it turned out with this neuralization, this neural PCFG. Um, we were able to train our uh, pcFgs that outperform the right branching baseline and with the compound pcFG which enriches the pcFG with long-range dependencies uh, with the sentence of a latent vector uh, we also uh, we outperform this mural pcFG as well so then
0: here there's um, there's some form of label that you have to decide right in this grammar mm-hmm. so how do you if you just have discrete, latent variables, how do you decide which, uh, you know, discrete element corresponds to which semantic label? Yeah, that's a great question. When you're going to evaluate.
1: um, In the current setup, uh, the convention is to simply ignore the tree labels and then just evaluate based on tree topology. Um, But when we did look at these labels that were predicted, we looked at the empirical frequency of how often they correspond to, to certain linguistic labels. And we did see clear al- alignments, like it was learning certain uh, non-terminal labels that corresponded to noun phrases. Um, so it was definitely learning something meaningful, which was, uh, yeah,
0: was yeah, nice to see. Uh, I, I really liked another aspect of this, and maybe it was a more um, speculative quote, but so I'm reading directly from the thesis here. It says, it's possible that, the model is utilizing subtrees to capture broad template-like structures and using Z to fill them in. And I thought that was a really nice intuition. So did you get this intuition that this is what, that this is occurring? And do you think that building in these types of ideas could be useful for generating text, for instance?
1: Um, Yeah, so we did see some evidence for that happening where, you know, for example, if you get subtrees that had the same um, subtree structure, the discrete structure, and then you you, you cluster the sentences based on the Z, uh, with say PCA, um, you get uh, you get constituents. Well, you get things that model things are constituents that have the same syntactic structure, for example, they're prepositional phrases, but have different lexical realizations. Um, so this hinted at something like disentangling of uh, syntax and semantics i hesitate to use the word syntax and semantics because i think the way sort of you know i use it or like nlp people in general use it doesn't give justice to the richness of you know syntax and semantics as a discipline but you know at a hand-wavy, hand-wavy level maybe it's disentangling syntax of semantics or a better way like disentangling what to say from how to say it it's interesting you mentioned the like the utility of this on mm-hmm text generation yeah it is something i'm thinking about um it turns out even with the compound extension like the the model is still nowhere near as um a powerful enough to generate coherent text like perplexity of these models are in say the high 100s whereas if you just have a vanilla rnn language model you know it's in the 70s to 80s depending on which version of ptb you use
0: um, yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, so it's it'd be interesting to see whether this will allow us, you know, this model, these models at scale um, will allow us to automatically um, generate and provide you sort of like, uh, uh, switch into the internals of the generative process. So you can say, you, I have a sentence like this, I want to capture the content of this, but say it like another sentence. Um, And another aspect is even just from the perspective of learning like representations, um, I think this line of uh, direction could be interesting. Like can we, for example, capture for a given sentence um, two representations. One captures how to say it and another captures what to say. And um, there's very interesting work uh, from various folks doing this. Some people at UWASH, some people at TTIC. but this could be another technique for doing this as well um which is i think somewhat underexplored
0: yeah then i was thinking if you had um say a large document for example mm-hmm. then some large documents might have a certain structure so if you could somehow disentangle that uh use this this latent representation as sort of a planning mechanism for generating the document
1: yeah right that'd be definitely interesting although i hesitate to speculate whether the formalism of context-free grammars is the right uh, right mathematical tool for right, right, right. capturing, like, um, say, sentence-level discourse. Um,
0: I, no, I, I was really zooming out and just focusing on the... Uh, oh, this notion of, like... ...template-like like, notion, yeah. yeah. Yeah, after doing all this work, um, so on continuous latent variables, discrete latent variables, trying to incorporate them into different types of models, Mm -hmm. what's your outlook on continuing with these? Do you think you'll still keep studying these and trying to take them further? Or, um, do you see yourself maybe looking into, into other things?
1: So so one area that I'm thinking about, which I haven't even started is, is like, um, revisiting some of the classical tree transduction grammars, like, um, sort of like synchronous grammars for sequence to sequence learning. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to revisit these classical formalisms, uh, these classical formalisms, again, with the tools that we saw with the neural PCFG work that, that made it work well, i.e. neural parameterizations and making things more flexible with say, variational with richer generative models that make inference intractable, but that are trained with amortized variational inference. Um, so uh, it's. I, I I think um I'm interested in revisiting these um synchronous grammars for sequence to sequence learning um and this would be an empirical investigation where like hopefully um, these models have a better inductive bias than classical seek to seek methods so that say they they uh, are more data efficient. Um, now, I don't think mm-hmm. I, I don't think on like machine translation, they'll be at all competitive with. Uh, the current fully connected seek methods, but maybe on lower resource languages or on tasks where mm. composition or generalization is more important, these types of uh, classical tree trans- transducers will do better. Um, so that's on the mm-hmm. engineering empirical extensions of um, these hierarchical latent variable models. Um, I think on the more uh, scientific or cognitive science side, um, It'd be interesting to investigate different formalisms um, than context free grammars uh, that have been posited to govern human language structure. Um, for example, like my- mildly context sensitive grammars, such as tree adjoining grammars, have some very nice properties. Um, and again, exploring how contemporary techniques for parameterization and inference can-, can help learning of these models. Um, uh, and and seeing how um, say the grammars or the structures that you get uh, can be used to obtain metrics that correlate better with human electrophysiological activity or 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 seeing how these can say confirm or uh, disconfirm the different um, theories of syntax that are hypothesized to govern human language um you know it's not a very good uh it wouldn't be like sort of like the best evidence, but it would, you know, whether if you have some formalism and you, di- you train it on raw text and you discover some tree structure and whether that agrees or doesn't agree with um, phenomena that's hypothesized by linguists, I-, I think provides one level of empirical evidence for or against uh, different hypotheses that, uh, that, are, um, that are hypothesized to govern human language um so that would be mm-hmm. the more scientific extension of uh these hierarchical models but both of these are very speculative so
0: and then i'm guessing that probably in doing this investigation mm-hmm. it might be similar to your thesis where this requires new uh, learning or inference methods yeah maybe to these things mm-hmm. yeah that, that that is fascinating to hear though um kind of tracing it back i mean maybe you got interested in these rnngs and then those had this Correspondence with neural activity, and then it sounds like maybe that played a part in uh, your interest in exploring this further. Now,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I think definitely
0: you'll be starting um, in July of 2021 as a assistant professor at MIT. So anyone who's listening, if uh, if this sounds interesting to you, I'm sure you'll be uh, taking some students to to study yeah, these I'll types just of maybe things.
1: Be looking for some students who, uh, if you're interested, in these uh please uh, yeah, mention this on your applica- mention my name on your application, and, oh, and please feel free to send me an email.
0: This is always a, a hard question to summarize about advice, but uh, do you maybe have advice to maybe someone who's starting a PhD and is interested in uh, latent variable models, or it doesn't have to be specific to, to latent variables, just some general advice?
1: First of all, I, I think in general, it's probably not... Uh, well, this itself is advice, but it's probably not a good idea to like rely on advice from people who who have like survived you know there's the sample bias um looking back I I can really say like like I I was just very lucky both in terms of like some aspects of research turning out well and both like sort of like getting into deep learning at the right time um meeting my advisor at the right time and, and these are all just very serendipitous events that you can't plan for under this view i think it's you can't plan to be lucky right i think in some sense you should do what you find interesting and if it turns out you're lucky that's great um yeah if i reflect back back on my phd i was just incredibly lucky with a lot of different things and um and and this certainly does inform uh my thinking about you know, like. How many people aren't exposed to opportunities that you know do, don't even like have the opportunity to be lucky? And I, I think this doesn't right. form like how I think about um like say teaching computer science, um about diversity and inclusion in tech. Um and, and just not to like go off on a tangent for example for, for like not to do this conversation, like I, I I got into computer science like pretty late. Um, so in undergrad, I studied math and econ, and uh, I took one computer science class, which was required for math majors. And this was like intro to CS, um, which was like like a MATLAB based intro to programming course. And like I I like I hated that course, and it was one one of my worst classes at uh, during my undergrad. And I, it, looking back on it, I think the part of the reason was uh, like clearly like 80, 90% of the class like had exposure to programming before coming into this class. And, you know, me learning this from scratch, I I felt like I was like very far behind um, and I felt like there was no motivation to catch up because I thought, you know, I I would never be able to catch up to them. Um, And now like sort of in my early 20s, I I was... Again, serendipitously exposed to programming through my job and that's how I picked it up but so so I got lucky but then I think about like you know how many people uh get that similar um experience in their first CS class and and this was coming from someone who's like as an Asian male like part of the majority demographic right um so if you think about um that that certainly informs like for example how i want to teach my classes um but but these are sort of nascent thoughts and i think i'll be thinking more harder about them as i you know think about um draft uh drafting crafting courses and such
0: i guess like having some some underlying interest that that's driving all of it and and like staying focused but then um always realizing that, uh, so many steps along the way are, there is a factor of luck. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So trying to open that up to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And then I think a a separate branch of it is it also, I I think it's also a commentary on, on science itself that you could read a paper and and look at the results and kind of see the mathematical derivation, Mm -hmm. but like maybe to actually get it to work in practice, it was, uh, or some like lucky things that, that fell together. And so now this is what we now know about as a result. Right, right. <laughs>